All right, let's uh, let's get going. Good to see you, man. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Uh, good morning. <clears throat> Hope everyone's having a good week so far. Let me pray, and we'll dive into our topic this morning. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord God, what a joy it is to be able to come and just to think as men about your word and pray, God, that you would use uh, your inspired scripture to work in our hearts today, that the Spirit would do a work in us as we contemplate these truths, help us to understand the truth and to faithfully apply the truth that uh, we wouldn't just fill up our minds with more, but that our lives would actually be, begin to change according to these things, that we would walk more faithfully with you because of our time together today. Help us to be men who lead well in the home, uh, who lead well in the church, and who lead well in the world um, as those desiring to honor you in, in every area of life that you place us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, I want to talk about keeping a close watch on your heart. Um, just the, the necessity of being very careful with yourself, thinking through um, your life and thinking through your interactions with others before you make a decision for you and how you treat people, how you respond to people. You know, I've had the privilege over the years of ministry of helping a lot of people work through different areas of sin, different areas in their life. I'm working in my own heart on sin and how to grow through sin. Sometimes those sins are personal. Sometimes they're interpersonal and relationships and conflict in relationships, maybe involving a spouse, a child, another church member. And what I've noticed is that as I have sought to shepherd others and shepherd my own heart, is there seems to be a common denominator that all of us have to understand if we're going to make progress. And particularly when we're talking about interpersonal relationships and any kind of conflict with another person. And so I think this will be really applicable in your marriage relationship because that's your most closest relationship. But it really applies to any relationship in the church, at work, anywhere as we think through these things. And so let's talk about this for a moment. What's the difference between a disagreement and an argument? What's the difference between a disagreement and an argument? Stubbornness. Okay. That, You're gonna stick to your side. Right. And not compromise. Yes, often stubbornness is a big part of that. What else? Yeah. Attitude changes for sure. Is it? Let's. Are, are, is it? Are they both sinful? Is it sinful to have a disagreement with someone? No. Okay. Is it sinful to have an argument with someone? Yes. Yes. So what? What changes it from a non-sinful situation to a sinful situation? Anger. Anger. Usually, anger is provoked in some way within us. Say again. Yeah, yeah. So your your thoughts just come flying out. <clears throat> right. We get we get the order wrong. Where I talk to my kids about this often. It's like you. What happened there is you you felt something, you spoke, and then you thought instead of feel, think, speak. We feel, speak, think. Right? That's why you're always trying to get your words to come back into your mouth. is because you're just flying off of your emotions. 
and so in your marriage relationship, in the church, it's not wrong to have two different perspectives about something. As long as that's not something that the Bible has given the definitive, this is the answer, it's, that's not wrong. But as soon as that turns from we have a disagreement to now we are arguing with one another over that, now we've crossed over a line into sinful conflict. So I want to start with, I'm hoping, if we don't run out of time, and this may be a two-parter, but I'm hoping to get to Matthew 7 eventually. That's where I want to land. But I want to build up to that. And so I want to start with James chapter 4, because in James chapter 4, he gives us the really helpful answer to our question of where does our conflict come from? Why do we have sinful conflict in the first place? Well, he gives us a universal answer here. In James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we'll read verses 1 and 2. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? There's our question. Where do these conflicts come from? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask. And he talks about how do we ask properly. But here, here's the answer. He says, is not, if he answers in the form of a question, is not the source of conflict your pleasures? Literally, that word pleasures is the word for lusts. Often we think of lust with in a negative way, and of course, it's because it's used that way most often, but the Greek word really means strong desire. So because it's most often talking about strong desires for things that are bad, we think of it negatively, but it can be a strong desire for something good. But here is this, this internal desire for something that's gone unmet. So we have conflict with one another or other people. Anytime there is this internal conflict that goes unmet, he says, that then provokes you, it wages war in your members, you lust, you have this strong desire, you don't have it, so you commit murder. So that the anger comes flying out of your mouth, um, it shows up in your interactions, but it begins with this internal desire of the heart <clears throat> that goes unmet. And so as you begin to think about conflict in your own life, uh, and I would encourage you to go ahead and start thinking about it. What, what's the most recent conflict you had with someone, with your wife, with someone at work, with someone in the church? It could be even over something really, really petty. But I want you to start thinking, what was the last conflict that we had? And then I want you to ask yourself, what did I want that I didn't get? What did I want in that moment that I didn't get? Because that's what James is saying here. You wanted something. You had some internal desire that you wanted. It went unmet, and therefore that became an idol in your heart that you were willing to sin to try and get or sin out of frustration that you didn't get it. Now, as you think about these, these desires, obviously, if the desire itself is sinful and you have conflict, now you've sinned in two ways. You need to confess the desire itself because it's an unholy desire, and forsake that, and you need to repent over the conflict and, and, and how you responded in the conflict. But what I've found in my own life is that it's much more difficult when the desire is something good. When I know for a fact, <coughs> biblically, that this is a desire God says is a good desire that I ought to have, and it goes unmet, I find that my flesh is more tempted to justify sin because I know that what I want is a good thing. So let's talk about it. In 
A couple different areas of life. What in marriage, what are some good biblical God honoring desires for your marriage? A clean house. Clean house. Amen, right? <laughs> what else? Intimacy with your wife. Yeah, intimacy with your wife. It's an it's a aspect of marriage that God's given that's, that's good. What else? Friendship with your wife. Yeah, a close relationship, right? A friendship. What else? Willingness to serve. Yeah, a desire to, a desire to serve. Mm -hmm. Unity and, and just to get togetherness and, and leading your home, you know, and managing your home and leading your children. Yeah. Unity in one mind. Yeah, well, that's such a blessing in marriage. And Sacrificing. So, yeah, sacrifice, mutual sacrifice. What else? How about respect for my wives? Clarity. Clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, submission in the biblical sense that our wives would submit to our leadership. Those are all the fidelity, obviously. Um, prioritization of the marriage relationship over other human relationships. Yes. I'm a, yeah. In other words, being in time as opposed to being 15 minutes late. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. A lot of tensions in marriage over that. Yep. Absolutely. What are you saying, Wendell? In people that he's met. Okay. Yeah, in people that he's met. In marriages, you know. Finances. Yeah. So, in, 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 in what way? Like agreement on finances, you mean? Oh, yeah, how to spend money. Yeah, agreement on how to spend it. Talking about desires. Mm hmm. Someone's desires for. Spend money one way versus. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Of course. Let's talk about. Let's switch gears. What about in the workplace? What What are some good biblical desires that you ought, you could have expectations that you would have that are good for for the workplace environment? That's a dangerous question. Integrity. Mm. Oh. Integrity, yeah. We, we would want that. It doesn't always happen in a, a fallen world, but yeah, that's a good desire. Integrity. What else? Balance with your work yeah, and balance with your employees. Say balance? The things that are yeah, balanced, the way that things are responsible for, say, as a CEO or a manager or whatever, mm -hmm. employees and how to take care of them, nurture them, and enforce good things, and you know, be able to give feedback to the way that's loving them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What else? Fair share of workload. Yeah. Fair balancing of, of the load. Respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a, a mutual sense of respect among bosses and employees. Fair compensation, right? Uh, what, what industry standard, at least, would say is fair for that position? What about in the church? What are some good desires in the church? Unity. Fellowship. Yeah. Say again. Fellowship. Fellowship. Yeah. Unity. What else? Love for one another. Yeah, a sense of that of brotherly love and care for each other. 
Anybody else? Scripture. Yes, I for the Scripture to be. Uh, obviously, some of these are commanded by Scripture. <clears throat> that Scripture is primary. With these. Yeah, no service. Yeah, a, a, a desire to be able to serve and a desire for there to be a, a sense of serving in the church. Yes. So all of these, what I want to demonstrate is in each of these areas of life, and we can mention others, there are legitimate, legitimately good things, biblical, scriptural things that are not wrong for us to desire. In fact, we ought to desire and we ought to seek. But over any of the things that we listed, we all agree those are good. In the eyes of God, is it justifiable for us to sin if we don't receive one of those good desires? Never. Never, right? And I think that's where we have, that's where the rubber meets the road. Is, and we can get, I mean, I, I get in my own mind, you can get mixed up where you realize that I'm justifying a sinful attitude in this situation. Um, or I, I justified a sinful tone in how I responded to that because I knew that what I wanted was right and good. We have to be really careful because God never makes that distinction. God says these things are good, and yet, and God is the giver of all good things, and yet at times he has chosen in a certain situation not to give us a good thing. And we have to trust his sovereign care in those times. Now, understand, I'm not taking, don't take it to an extreme. There are things in, in the church that are commanded. If they're not happening, there ought to be, we ought to work to change those things. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying at the base level, a good desire for a relationship goes unmet. We cannot justify sin when we don't have those things. And there's a great, the biblical example that comes to mind for me comes from Numbers. Turn to Numbers chapter 20. Hopefully we all understand that when you think about Old Testament prophets and you think about who, who's kind of the prophet of prophets in the Old Testament, Moses ought to be the guy that comes to your mind, right? Moses sets the standard, and even, even in Deuteronomy 18, there's the promise that another like him will come who's prophesying Christ, who is the ultimate prophet of prophets. But here you have this, this instance in which the people sin and uh, you know, this is happening throughout the wilderness journey. We've talked about this in Hebrews. These people, from the word go, that don't trust God, they don't trust Moses' leadership, they grumble against Moses, they grumble against Aaron, his own brother and sister grumble against him. I mean, it's just constant, constant, constant. We want water, we want food, we want different food, we want to go back to Egypt. We, I mean, just we want, there's the promised land, we're not going to go in. Okay, yeah, we are going to go in at the wrong time. It's just over and over and over again. And now it sort of builds up to this moment in the life of Moses where the people again sin against God. They've already been told you're not going, this generation's not going into the wilderness because of your sin. They still haven't learned. And they're upset again because they're thirsty. And you can see in Moses' frustration, it's like, really? Again, are we still here on the water thing? Have we not learned that God miraculously provides for us in the wilderness? Can we not trust God for a day? I mean, just for a day. You can see the frustration. And so in verse 8 of chapter 20, God says, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, speak to the rock, before the, their eyes, that it may yield the water. 
You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. These were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. Now, I... I'm using this because to me it's it's kind of the, the obvious example. If there was ever a time where we would think that God would give someone a pass, right, on having good desires that went unmet, we, we might think it's this instance with Moses. I mean, he had a certainly a righteous indignation on the one hand. He saw their rebellion against God, but then that turned over into a personal uh, offense. He took, he took their rebellion against God personally. And then he disobeys the word of God and in a way that we might think is somewhat trivial, but obviously not trivial in the eyes of God. He's supposed to speak to the rock. Instead, he hits the rock with his stick. You also notice what he said there in chapter 20 is that, shall we bring forth water for you from this rock? And so obviously he's taking this now personally instead of seeing the ultimate sin between them and God. And so... God says, no, from you, you yourself, then, like the rest of this generation, will not have the privilege of going into the promised land. And so if we see in this extreme example where this man has been sinned against in true, legitimate ways, and God's been sinned against by these people in legitimate ways, and yet God doesn't justify the sin of Moses, his premier prophet in the Old Testament, then why would we ever be tempted to think that God will allow us to justify sin for much lesser offenses. For example, why would we think <clears throat> that it's justifiable for us to become angry or frustrated with our wife because she's too tired one evening for intimacy and we hoped that we would have that that night? How, how, how much more seriously should we take it when we get sinfully bitter inside of ourselves because someone else gets to serve in a position in the church that we really wanted to serve in? How much more seriously should we take it when we give in to sinful uh, slander of our boss because they promoted someone to a position, in our opinion, unjustly? Right? These are the things where we see, hey, I, I see this, this was legitimately wrong, or I have this desire and it's legitimately good and it went unmet and therefore I'm justified in my anger. I'm justified in my sin. If it wasn't right for Moses in that extreme situation, then it's certainly not right for us in much smaller battles with temptation. Now, I'm bringing all that up because I want to bring us to this. This is something I've been meditating on a lot in my own life, and my prayer is that it would be helpful for each of us, and that is what I'm going to call a biblical sense of self-suspicion. A biblical sense of self-suspicion. I'm going to make an argument, and I'm going to read a number of passages here, that it is right and good for us to have a healthy sense of self-suspicion when it comes to testing our hearts in circumstances. In every instance of conflict with your wife, in every instance of conflict with someone in the church 
or in anywhere else, our first response ought to be to look to ourselves and have a, a strong sense of suspicion that my heart may not be right. I might not be able to see it right now. I might feel very confident that I am right, but I can't trust my heart. I've got to do a heart analysis before I trust myself. Now, I'm just going to read a litany of verses here, and I want you to just take these in. So listen to Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's a, that's a famous verse, but think about that. In this man's mind, he's fully confident that he's making the right decision. It seems right to him. It's not that he is trying to jump off the cliff knowingly. It's that he thinks going this way is the right way. And yet God says in that path actually leads to death. He's wrong. He's, he's misassessed his heart. Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. In his own sight, he thinks, I'm doing right. I'm justified. And yet God looks at the heart and weighs the motives of that man and truly determines whether he's right or wrong. Proverbs 18, 13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. I want you to think about that in the context of, an, of a, a disagreement with someone else. So many times before, I mean, from the very beginning of the disagreement, we get set on our position and our viewpoint. And we dig in our heels, and I know I'm right about this, and so the, the just thing here is for me to convince you of how right I, my position is so that you'll be right too, Right? And what this says is you don't even know because you haven't even heard the other side. And, and this is true in counseling. Anytime there's a, a perspective, there's going to be another perspective, and you've got to hear both before you can really make a judgment. But the same thing's true in our own hearts. We need to be willing and, and, and asking for a tr the true perspective of that other person to really understand it before we make a judgment on whether or not our initial thought was right. Proverbs 18, 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. This is true for us. We get, uh, we get our, uh, our perspective. Again, we dig in our hills. It seems absolutely right. We can spreadsheet it. I can argue it for you with all the subpoints and everything as to why I'm right. And then I ask my wife, what do you think about this? And she explains her point of view. And I'm like, oh, that's not right. I was, I was not right. And, but we have to be humble enough, though, to allow for that examination to come, to hear the other perspective. Another famous verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God alone, what that passage is saying is God alone is actually able to dissect and see the true intentions of the heart. Now, obviously, for the believer, we have a converted heart. We have a new nature, but still we have a sinful flesh. And so our hearts can deceive us if we're not washing our mind with the truth and analyzing our heart according to the truth. I love the way Psalm 139 comes to a close where, where David invites the Lord, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. 
He's basically saying, I'm opening myself to your examination because I don't see myself properly as I should. I know I'm not convicted of anything right now, but that doesn't mean there's nothing wrong in my heart. God, I'm opening my heart before you. Show me the wickedness within me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the right way. 1 Timothy 4.16. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. What, he, what he's telling Timothy there is pastoring the church in Ephesus is it's not just your doctrine. Your doctrine's crucial. It's got to be right, but it's also your character. Timothy, pay close attention to your own character as well as your teaching. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. This is Paul. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. Listen to this. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. That's a a very important verse. He says, verse 4, I'm not conscious of anything against myself. He's saying right now, my conscience feels clean. I'm not convicted of anything. But that he doesn't then say, so I'm good. What he says is, but I'm not acquitted by that. Just because I don't feel conviction in my heart doesn't mean I'm off the hook. He says, the one who examines me is the Lord. It's that Psalm 139. I Search me. Know my heart. Two more. 1 Timothy 1.15. Listen to Paul's perspective of himself. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, and yet he says, I'm the foremost sinner. Ephesians 3.8, says the same thing. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So here we see... Paul calling himself the worst of sinners. We see Paul with a healthy sense of self-suspicion. Just because I don't feel anything against myself doesn't mean I'm acquitted. And so I think as we take all of those together, I hope you can see there is this biblical call for us to be self-suspicious. Now, I don't mean in the, to a point of paranoia, okay? Or you, we, we can get so in our own head that, that we just sit in the house and constantly contemplate ourselves. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is don't trust your perspectives until they've been tested by Scripture. Don't trust your perspective in a disagreement until you have legitimately heard the other side and tested everything according to the Scriptures. Don't just assume I'm right, I've got this, I've thought it through, and therefore everyone else just needs to get on board with me. There needs to be, if Paul had a sense that just because I'm not convicted doesn't mean I'm acquitted, and certainly we also ought to carry the same sense of self-suspicion. Now, all of that really was introductory to get to the primary text that I want to get to, which is Matthew chapter 7. So if you'll turn there, Matthew chapter 7, of course, comes near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And when we talk about conflict and resolving conflict if there was one passage that if i was only able to give one passage to 
premarital couples and the married couples on how to resolve conflict, I would give them Matthew 7. Because understanding and living according to these principles are crucial for us to, to lovingly resolve conflict and avoid conflict in marriage. So this is Matthew 7. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, the primary verses I want us to talk about are verses 3 to 5, but let me make a couple of comments about verses 1 and 2 because they play into uh, the argument. Now, a lot of people turn to these verses and say, well, you know, don't judge my lifestyle. See, the Bible says don't judge, and you're judging me, and judge, you're being judgmental. Of course, I hope we understand when he gives the command here not to judge, he doesn't mean that every form of judgment uh, is sinful or wrong. We're actually commanded to judge other believers in the sense of uh, if someone's in unrepentant sin and they're living in hard-hearted rebellion, we're to come alongside lovingly that person, trying to restore them with a spirit of gentleness, as Galatians 6 1 says, even to the point of church discipline, if it comes to that. Even in this, in this very text, he says here in verse 5, first take out the log in your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to do what? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he doesn't say just take the log out and don't worry at all about the speck in your brother's eye. He's not saying that we ought not to help others or confront others even. Um, but what, is, what he is talking about here is a critical spirit, a, a spirit of judgmentalism in which we are critical of others. We hold them to a, 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 an ungracious standard where if, if you step across the line, even in the nth degree, then boom, I'm on you like, like a dog on a bone. Right? We have no sense of graciousness, no sense of understanding, you know, I'm a sinner too. I can let that go. I can cover that with grace. But it's just this, this very rigid standard. And the, the threat here is that if you want to hold that kind of ungracious standard of, of a critical spirit, God's going to hold you to that standard is the idea. He says, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So he's calling here to, to patience with one another, to, to graciousness, to believing the best, and even to allow the Spirit time to do work in another's heart um, before we just are constantly jumping on other people because they're always out of step with the bar that we've set for them. So a good way to check yourself on verses 1 and 2 is to ask yourself when you're talking to your wife or children or to others and you're, you're sort of laying out a standard, say, is this how I would want God to approach my sin? Is this how I would want God to act towards me in regards to my sin? And if the answer is no, then you ought to step back with some self-suspicion and say, then what is the right way to approach this person in their sin? Now I'm going to leave that. There's a lot more we could say, but I really want to get to verses 3 to 5 because this is where... I think it's very helpful for us as we talk about resolving conflict with one another. As I said, if I could only give couples one passage, I would give them this one. Let's just read verses 3 to 5 one more time to keep them in our mind. 
Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, there's a lot that we could say here, but this really is where the breakdown often happens uh, interpersonally when we get into conflict with other people. And here's just a, an unfortunate reality of being in a fallen world and being sinners, and that is that we're much more attuned to the sins of others than we are to our, our own sin. Not to say as we grow in Christ, hopefully we become more and more sensitive to our sin and we see it and we're confessing it. But the truth is, if I ask you right now, give me three things that you think your wife could work on to make your marriage better, you'd probably come up with them pretty quickly. But if I said, give me three things that you need to work on to make your marriage better, it may take you a little bit longer. Unless you've been in already in this pattern of practicing self-suspicion. Usually, we've already got this list of things. Man, if she would just get over the hump on this, then our marriage would be perfect. And, and that's kind of the perspective that we have. We'll have that of others as well outside of the marriage relationship. But what this passage says is that if that's your perspective of constantly trying to help others take that speck out of their eye without first addressing your own heart, you're a hypocrite and a fool. And, and, and we see it, it's meant to be a comical illustration, right? That you have this massive thing protruding. Really, it's, it's like the word is for like a piece of lumber, so you've got a piece of lumber coming out of your eye, and they have like a splinter in their eye. And so you're here, let me, let me help you, and I'm whapping you in the head with my lumber, right? It's supposed to be a, a, a hyperbolic situation. But that's essentially what we do when we are unwilling to first repent of our own sin. Essentially what he's saying is, you're not in a right place to help another brother, even if that brother or sister is your spouse, if you've not first truly dealt with the own, your own sin in your heart and you're coming to that situation having repented of that sin, only then are you really prepared to help them, to truly help them take the splinter out of their eye. He's not saying the splinter is not a problem. He's not saying they don't need to get the splinter out of their eye. He's saying you're not the person to help them if you refuse to first address the massive piece of lumber protruding from your own eye. And so this gives us an order. It gives us an order of events. When you see, I just want to caution all of us, another church member, your wife, your kids, whatever it is, you see this thing in them that you know you want to address, the first thing you need to do is say, let me just analyze first prayerfully my own heart. Let me think through. Why am I wanting to address this? Because sometimes... Here's what happens. When you have a piece of lumber in your eye, you may even think you see a splinter and there's not even a splinter in their eye. Right? You're, you're convinced that you see it, but your vision is so obstructed by your own sin that you're not even seeing it clearly. And so let me just give you an example. Take a look at the screen real quickly. And you may have seen this before, but tell me what you see initially. Does the girl look like she has tiny little skinny legs to anybody? Uh, yeah. If you look at it from one perspective, it looks like, if you just look at her face, then it, at the bottom it looks like she has these tiny little skinny legs. When you look at her legs, she's got a bag of popcorn that's covering her legs. You've probably seen this one too. 
You see two vases? Two faces? Or do you see like a candle holder? Candles. Yeah. Right? Well, it depends. And so what I'm saying is we, when you look at that, so here's what happens. You come to a conflict, and I'll have two people I'm trying to help resolve a conflict, and one is saying, that's two faces. Okay? Like, right? And the other one's saying, that's a candlestick. Right? <coughs> that is a candlestick. No, that is two faces, right? And so what we have to understand is that if we're not willing to first step back and hear the other person's perspective, then we, we may have a point, but they probably have a point as well, and the truth is going to be somewhere in the middle often, or sometimes we just realize I was totally off base. I just wasn't even looking. It's like this one. We're arguing the girl has, the poor thing has skinny legs, and it's like, no, she's holding a bag of popcorn, Right. And so if you don't take that log out of your eye, you can't even have confidence yet that you really are seeing a splinter in the other person's eye. You see that? What we're getting at here? So the first step then. Handle the person in the candlestick mm -hmm. imagery there. Uh, you say it's candlestick. I say it's two faces. Mm -hmm. But you're Adam. You're not budging. So how do you communicate and have a relationship with someone that's not budging? on the candlestick portion. Right. And I'm thinking, well, I see both, yeah. which I did. Mm -hmm. But you said, no, it's a candlestick in the story. Right. And so, so th that's where you, you have an issue as persons hardening their heart mm -hmm. in sin. And so you have to deal with the hardness of heart. Call them to account on, on the hardness of heart that they're d demonstrating. Um, and so we'll, I'll bring them to a passage like this on, are you really stepping back to analyze your heart? Mm -hmm. Or have you made a position and so, because what, what often happens is a person's made a position, they're convinced it's right, and they're just unwilling to even consider the other side. And that's Matthew 7. It's like, no, just hang a minute. Let's just look at your own heart. Let's look at what you're demonstrating in your tone of voice. Let's look at what you're demonstrating in your dogmatism over this issue. See? So we'll start to just kind of weed away at the heart issue that's demonstrating itself and just sort of put the picture to this. Let's put the two faces. Let's, we're going to put that off the set. Let's just look at your heart for a minute and what, what's coming out of your heart. Because what's coming out of your heart is not good right now. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then if the person will deal with their heart, now then we can bring the picture back and say, okay, can you see there are two faces. There's also a candlestick. And, it's, and, and usually if the person won't repent of their hardness of heart, then they're never going to see that. But if they will soften their hearts before the Lord, with the work the Lord does that work, then all of a sudden they start to say, oh, okay, I can see why. It's not my perspective, but I can see rationally why you came to that perspective, right? Does that make sense? Try to get a compromise. Well, on the course of the candle, this is a little bit off topic, but the candelabra illustration, I mean, sometimes, sometimes there's, okay, so on this picture, there's true, there's an actual true way to see this, the right way to see this image and a wrong way to see this image she legitimately is holding a bag of popcorn. She doesn't have skinny legs. The truth is she doesn't have skinny legs. So if a person is dogmatic that knows she does have a problem with skinny legs, then that, that's, they actually have a wrong perspective that has to be corrected. On the other picture, both are true of that picture. There are two faces and there is a candelabra. And so that's a situation where this, again, that's back to where it's not wrong to have a disagreement. It's wrong to argue over that disagreement. So I would put that in the category of something that you don't have to necessarily, if, if you look at it and always see two faces, that's fine. And if you look at it and always see a candelabra, that's fine. 
And we have to be able to say both of those are okay because they're not sinful perspectives. So there, there are two different situations. One is there is a, an actual right way to see it. The other one is there are two legitimate perspectives. I, I deal with this with young couples all the time. And so you, you know, sometimes not so young. But um, so you get upset over uh, there's a right way to load the dishwasher, right? Do the knives go up or they go down? No. See, Christmas Christmas traditions. You know, do we do we eat this at Christmas dinner? I mean, in my wife's family, everyone sits in the same chair. Everyone, we eat the exact same meal. In my family, usually we don't sit. The food is out. You get up and get it, and it's diff- food's different every year. Which one of those is right? <laughs> and so, so, so what I'm getting at is sometimes legitimately humility is coming to say it doesn't matter you want to sit in the same place let's sit in the same place it's having a spirit of graciousness towards one another to say that's great your family does that you want to put the knives up if that blesses you I'll put the knives up even though I prefer them to be down right so you have to be able to sit, sit distinguish between is this a situation where there truly is a right and wrong and sometimes it is, and we can work towards that. Or is this a situation in which there are two legitimate perspectives and they're not sinful and they're okay? Does that make sense? Yes? So I think of it this way sometimes, you know, when there is no right or wrong, mm-hmm. you've got to go to the author right? mm-hmm. and ask them, like, what you're saying about the dinners. It's like, well, how does the host want it done, right? Right, yeah. You know, and then that way you do it that way. Yeah. Um, or whoever drew that picture, you ask them, what is this, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have clarity of the Yeah, exactly. That's, that's like when I go to our family, I'm not going to try to force them to do their Christmas tradition the way that our family Yeah. Does. Also, when we go to my family, we don't try to force them to do it the way. We just enjoy both and say these are both good things, right? Um, now, that's it's a little bit off topic, but it does play into the issue here. And what, here's what I want to get to with this is I want to help us because... Taking the log out of your eye is a skill. It, it's, not, it's not intuitive to us to see. We have to learn how to analyze our hearts, to get to the real heart issues in our hearts, and to confess them and to put them off. Because the truth is, we can, just, we can all just get stuck in, I just see it this way. Sometimes I'll have to call a good friend that I trust, that I, I know biblically can help me and say, okay, here, I'm just going to tell you the situation as plainly as I can, because I know I'm, I'm likely sinning in some way in this situation, but I truly can't see it. But I know it's probably there, so I need you to help me. And I'll just lay it out. And <clears throat> that's because our hearts are so deceptive sometimes, they're so deceived, that we need somebody else to come alongside and say, ah, here, have you considered this? You know, I mentioned Galatians 6.1 earlier. Brethren, if anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. I think a good rule of thumb is if, if you can't come alongside a person and truly restore them with a spirit of gentleness, like where you're restoring them, but it is not gentle, then there's probably a log in your eye. Right? Getting the log out of the eye, repenting of that sin is what helps me have enough humility to truly be gentle and gracious in coming alongside someone. So if I'm not able to do that, 
That means I'm not ready yet. There's still some sin in my heart, some animosity, whatever it is that I've got to confess before I do that. Now, I'm going to try to help us with this, and I may do another session next time on uh, getting to root issues of sin because that plays into this as well. But in just a second, I'm, I'm going to have Alejandro pass something around. In fact, go ahead and do it now because it'll help. I want to I want to do, I made this up. We'll call this a conflict analysis. Um, I hope that you thought earlier when I said, what's the last conflict you had with someone? Um, I hope that you came up with one. If you didn't come up with one, come up with one now because I want you to use it for this exercise. But before you do it, I want to give you an example. I just made this up, okay? This is not real. I'm not talking about a church member or anybody. I made this up, okay? But here's how this is going to work. I want you to think of a conflict that you recently had that was a legitimate conflict, and it could be over something silly or it could be something significant. The goal of this is to help us find the log in our eye that needs to be put off and confessed before we can then carry on with the speck in our brother's eye. So here's an example that I made up and how it would fall into this sheet that I gave you. The example is this. A couple gets into a heated argument over where to go on family vacation. Okay? Here's how it happens. A man gets home from a long day of work, and his wife greets him at the door with a smile. She's been searching online all afternoon looking for possible locations for their upcoming summer vacation. And she begins to tell her husband that her favorite option would be to take the kids to Disney World. <clears throat> they've been talking about that at some point. That's something they both agreed they would like to do, they think would be a lot of fun. And so she begins to show him what they could do and kind of an itinerary of events and the budget for the trip. What she doesn't know is that her husband recently has been working on the finances over the past couple of weeks and things are starting to look pretty tight. He knows they really can't afford that trip. And <clears throat> the only way that they could do it is if they go in debt or if he works a ton of overtime hours over the next several months in order to be able to pay for it. The husband then becomes noticeably tense and quiet, so the wife asks him, what's wrong? Don't you want to take the kids to Disney? And the husband replies, well, well, yeah, but I'm surprised that you've done all this research without including me. I mean, not to mention, Disney's gotten more and more liberal over the past few years, and I don't even know if I want to take my kids to that place. The wife is shocked. She's taken back because they've talked about this trip for years. This is something that they've, they've wanted to do. And then the tears begin to flow as she begins to think about what they're going to miss and, and, and what's this change of heart that he's having. And, and her tears begin to make him feel guilty and even more pressure to come up with the money, which only makes him more angry. And so he blurts out, you always do this. You always make a big plan without including me. And then when I don't immediately agree to that plan, you get offended and I'm the bad guy. And the wife runs to her bedroom crying and they sleep in different rooms. Now, conflict analysis. Let's talk about what happened there. On your sheet, the first thing, the first question is, what was the conflict about on the surface? And just think about it in this way. If a, if a, if a couple came to you for help, what would they tell you their problem is in this situation? They would say, Are we, we're fighting over where to go on family vacation. We can't agree to where, to where to go on family vacation. Secondly, when did the disagreement turn into an argument? Turned to an argument when the wife brought up how much the trip would cost. What did that person want in the moment that he didn't get? He wanted, secretly in his heart, he wanted to stay within budget and not have to go into debt or work overtime to take the trip. So what was the conflict truly about? It was about money. 
But that's not what he made it about, right? It was, in his heart, it was about money, but he tried to make it about something else. Fifthly, what's the heart sin that needs to be put off? What was the secret sin of his heart? Well, pride, selfishness that resulted in lying, telling falsehoods. Instead of just admitting that he loved the idea, but honestly didn't think that they could afford it, he pridefully hid the real reason he was upset and blamed it on something else that he thought would sound legitimate and even spiritual. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever done that before, but it, it can be tempting. What was the righteous virtue that that person needed to put on instead? Well, humility, truthfulness, and selflessness. If, if the man had just <clears throat> been honest with her, then they could have had a helpful conversation about the budget and about realistic trip options. Instead, he turned it into an argument because he hid the truth because of his pride. Now, then the man tried to help her take the speck out of her eye of always making plans without him and get, then getting upset when he didn't want to do it, right? And so he's whapping her in the head with his log as he's trying to take that little speck out of her eye. So you see how this happens. What I want you to do is take your most recent conflict and I want you to now analyze it the same way from your heart perspective. I don't want to hear about what the other person did. That doesn't mean they didn't sin, okay? But you have no control over that and you're not commanded to fix that. But you are commanded to deal with your own heart. So I want you to work it through because this is how you take the log out of your own eye in the future. If you can get really good at this, then you can stop having the arguments in the first place or resolve them much more quickly than you have in the past. Okay? Give it a try. Take a few minutes and give it a shot.